morning. How are you today? Good. Good. It's great to see you all. As I said in the first service, someone told me uh, downstairs as they were coming in that you guys are all the people that don't have cottages up north. And so <laughs> we're thankful you're here. I'm just playing. Or a camper or something. I don't know. I'm just kidding. But it's great to have you. Some of you are enjoying your weekend, hopefully all of you. And uh, took time to come and worship with us, and we're th- so thankful for that. My name is Jim. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here at Woodside and Lake Orion, and uh, it's a great privilege to have you today and being able, being able to, excuse me, open up God's Word with you. If you would, turn to Revelation chapter 21. That's where we're going to be uh, today. We've been traversing through the last few chapters of Revelation in the series we've been calling All Things New as... Um, these chapters are full of amazing imagery of what things will be like in the end. And what we would call big word, a theological world, is the study of eschatology, but like what the end will look like. And uh, man, it's been really good, and I feel like it's been uh, super helpful for myself included, but I think many others, and just seeing uh, Revelation in a real way more than just information, right? In, in the, the arm of Christianity that I grew up in, and I feel like a lot of people are there, and we've talked about this over the last a number of weeks since we've been in this uh, series, is that, uh, man, so many people look at the, the book of Revelation as this uh, information download and trying to figure out how it's going to end and when it's going to end. Rather, uh, we, I, I firmly believe the book of Revelation was written for the people of that time and for the church today and for all of history it is a form of encouragement and motivation for the church as the church in their time was highly um, under oppression from the, the Roman Empire and, and those around them, and, and John getting this vision from God. It was meant to be in a hostile situation for the church, an encouragement for them to continue on as a hope that this is what you are longing for. This is the realization of what you've been promised, and I want to give you a vision of that to continue on in perseverance and with hope. And um, man, I just, that's been my heart this entire series is that we would be inspired to live out the kingdom of God here and now in, in, in the view of what is to come and the hope that is to come. And today is really uh, no different. As you get, as we dive into the second part of Revelation chapter 21 and get a real picture of the city of God and what it will be like there, wrapped in tons of different imagery, and it'll be good for us because, like I said last Sunday, I think that a lot of us probably have a very interesting view of heaven, what it looks like, and maybe you believe you're going to be floating around with a bow and arrow and shooting people from the clouds, or uh, maybe we have this image that St. Peter's going to be at the pearly gates with a clipboard and being like, "Mm, didn't make it, you're over there, and man, you did, go over here, and what does it really look like, and what is it going to... uh, what the experience is going to be like. And that's the beauty of what we've been studying the last number of weeks. And my hope is the same today as uh, there's this culminating vision in Revelation chapter 21 for the church, for us, that we might get a heavenly view of the city of God. Man, and it may it motivate us, inspire us to live out the kingdom of God here and now, no matter what it looks like, no matter whether we are much like them and it seems like there's little hope or the world is going in the opposite direction, then 
uh, maybe we would like it to, or maybe some of you are experiencing some form of of uh, oppression about your spiritual beliefs, in the same way, may it motivate us, no matter what the cost is in today's day and age, to live out the kingdom of God here and now, knowing our great hope is not in this place, but it's in a future hope that will be realized when we get to see Christ face to face. So if you look with me, Revelation chapter 21, we're going to read a number of verses today, and just bear with me. We're not going to get into every minute detail of them, but I just want you to see a a few things today that make the city of God glorious. And may you leave today, go about the rest of your weekend, encouraged with a great view and perspective of what one day will look like, and may it motivate us to live out the kingdom of God. Look with me, verse 9 of chapter 21 is what it says, then came one of the seven angels who had a seven bowls full of seven, the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me a holy city, showed me, excuse me, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like uh, um like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates were 12 angels, and at the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, verse 13, and on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, and the eighth beryl, and the ninth tapas, and the tenth chrysoprase, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. That's a good one in case you want to uh, get your wife some jewelry, uh, that one particularly. And then the, verse 21, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each of the gates were made in single pearl. And the city, and the street of the city, excuse me, was pure gold like transparent glass. I mean, just picture for a moment, I don't know about you, but that is like overwhelming to hear. I don't even know if I can really fathom what was just, I just read. And can you imagine the Apostle John, he's there on Patmos as he's writing, getting this vision, and his job is to put onto paper or or put down what he just saw. He just, like, man, this is the vision that I got. It's unbelievable, glorious, final, is the second part of John's vision here for the church. And the angel comes and escorts him to this place where he sees the bride, the wife of the Lamb, which is the city of God coming down to earth. And so the first thing I want you to see, what, what, what makes it the city of God glorious is really the, the layout of the city, what we just read, is glorious. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. And, and we talked a little bit about this last week, that, that the view, the city is called the bride. Let me show you the bride, the wife 
of the Lamb as he's seen the city come down. We'll talk about this in a moment, but it's set in contrast to another city that's talked all throughout Revelation, the city of Babylon, which is a picture of the evil cities that come against God throughout history or in their time, and now it's set in contrast to the holy city of Jerusalem, which really, we'll, we'll get there in a moment, it's laid out really as the, the, the perspective of the picture of the people of God throughout time, as he says, man, look at this city which represents the people of God. And he takes John to this high mountain. It's significant, man. If you read the scriptures, there's a lot of amazing revelation moments that come on top of mountains, right? With Moses and uh, even with Jesus, he takes the inner three, his closest disciples, to the Mount of Transfiguration. And they get a real picture and they see for the first time Jesus revealing his glory. I mean, even Jesus, it says in the Sermon on the Mount, in the beginning of Matthew, as he goes on top of a mountain. These are geographical markers, if you will. There's, as he goes to lay out the law of Christ, even, on the mountain. And here now, John gets, to, he's taken up on a high mountain to see the glory of what is to come. It says, what do you see? It says, the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, which is the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb, right? And in verse 11, all the way through verse 21, we're given the description of this city in this fantastic, mind-blowing imagery. And it might be wise for you later to read it a number of times, just to really drink in the beauty of what is being expressed um, by John in Revelation. And he points on a couple of different things. I just want to point them out to you. And first, in verse 11, John describes the city having the glory of God. Now, there's a theme in this, in this section, and we're going we're gonna to get into it more in, in just a few moments, but it says the glory of God is there. It says it has the glory of God. Its radiance is like a rare jewel, it says in the text here. And, and it's a description. What's amazing, if you go back to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 3, this is almost the same description of the city given about God himself in Revelation 4, 3. And the point is that what makes it glorious is the presence of God that is there, having the glory of God in the city that it's coming and emanating from the throne of God, which is there in the city and now permeates all of the city. Second, it, it, it seems like a pretty secure structure. As I many hear a lot about 12 gates on each side and the names of them is significant. It's the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel are inscribed there. And then the foundations are seem very secure. It says that it's, it, it's the the 12 names of the 12, 12 apostles. And I mean, this is what's profound about it is that the structure of it is emanating a picture for us, right? We got, we got images of gates and foundations and 12 tribes and 12 apostles, and it's meant in all of it to show us something about the city. And this is it, that, that this city is an entire scope of the people of God for all time. From all the way back, right, it's a picture of like the people of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel and the, the 12 apostles and all of it is a picture, the bride as it's called, right, is coming down, the bride of Christ, the place where God's people will dwell from all time is there with the glory of God. Pretty unbelievable. And then in verses 15 to 21, it, it lays out the structure of it. And the inner sanctuary really is what it's showing. We'll get to this in a moment. 
almost like the Holy of Holies within Israel's temple. Just as the angel measured out, it's closely connected to Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 41. There's a perfect measuring for the Holy of Holies in the temple, and now here the same in the city. It's perfect. It's perfectly square, depicted with precious gems and purest gold, very similar to Ezekiel. And and it's intended to inspire us and really, I don't know, but you overwhelm us with the unbelievable surpassing beauty of the city of God because God's presence is there. And what's amazing, the whole structure to me, the layout is insignificant that there's jewels and rubies and streets of gold and all that. The point is that the city is where God dwells and the entire universe is really made into like the Holy of Holies as the temple of God, which we'll see. And for the people that, that, that John is writing to, really us as well, it stands in contrast to every city you could experience. I was down in Detroit a few nights ago, and man, Detroit's a great city, a beautiful city. I was, I was driving with our friends and actually was commenting, and like, man, it's amazing to see how far along and how revitalized so much of the city has become, and it's taken such a turn for the positive, and so many great things are happening that, but in that, it doesn't matter. Name your favorite city, the most beautiful city in the world, it still is probably overpopulated. There's probably crime there. There, there there's... Um, you know, whatever it might be, there's a lot of dirty parts of cities, there's, there's pollution, all of that different stuff that you experience in the city, and the same would be for them. And no matter how dirty the streets of the city is in Detroit, where they're walking in any Roman city of their time, or even in, in, in Jerusalem then, man, it's going to be filthy. There's probably crime. They're always looking over their shoulder to see if they're going to get mugged or whatever it might be. And in all of that, this sets in contrast to any view of any city that we've seen or experienced or they've seen and experienced. John's vision now of the new Jerusalem is this heavenly city that almost seems like a utopia of perfection, right? No crime, no pollution, no violence, and things in the city are perfect just the way they're supposed to be in unending beauty and radiating the glory of God, and everything is perfectly structured in its perfect place. This is the view of the city that God wants us to see. And the city, the greatest thing is that it shines the glory of God. It's the ultimate place of security and peace. So you imagine for the people that, that John is writing to, like living in, in man, persecution and losing hope and saying, man, the thing that I want to motivate you with today is not, it's not just that, man, you can get through today. It's that one day you will live in the greatest city of all time, the kingdom of God. And the greatest thing about it is the glory of God is there present. And no matter what your struggles are, no matter what you're walking through, no matter how much you're persecuted, no matter how broken it seems all around you, there is coming a day where you will be with God for all of time in the beauty of his majesty with all the people of God, as we will see in a moment. Well, what, what, what also makes the city glorious? The well, second thing I want you to see is the light of the city. Starting in verse 21, look what it says. And I saw no temple in the city. This is significant. We'll come back to that. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into, uh, into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into, the glory, or bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable, detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So John's vision uh, of this new Jerusalem continues as he notes that there's no temple in this city. This would have been fascinating for the people that he's writing to, probably not so much for us in Lake Orion. You're not going to go to downtown Lake Orion and there's the temple of, I don't know, the Lake Orion dragons. I don't know, whatever it might be. It's not, it, this isn't that big of a deal for us, but for them, every city they would have entered, there would be a temple to some god right? And they were even used to it because in their city, it, before it was, it was uh, done away with, they had their own temple there for God with the Holy of Holies. So, man, this is contrast for them as they read this and they're hearing this, man, there, there, there's going to be a city where there is no need for a temple anymore to make sacrifice to or, or, or mediation place for the presence of God. Rather now, the dwelling place of God is going to be with man, as he said in verse 3 of this chapter. And so here now, there's no need, there's a first city, there's going to be no need for a temple because God is going to be there with his people for all the time. This is profoundly significant. As I come back to it in a few moments, but man, for the first time, God isn't going to be restricted to a, a square room in the back part of the temple where only one person could go in once a year to make a sacrifice. Rather now, the entire city is perfectly square and the same type of structure as the Holy of Holies, and his presence is profoundly emanated in every part of the city. And every person that comes into it that's a part of the kingdom of God gets to experience that together. The God and the Lamb have now the entire new creation with their glorious presence together. This is why, as I just said, that New Jerusalem, many believe, is portrayed as a cube, as it's the shape of the Holy of Holies that was the presence and the place of God with his people. And now, for the first time, God's presence is burst forth, in, forth into every place, filling every entire section of the cosmos and the new heaven and the new earth. And it says, the Lord's presence fills every part and pervades everything. So much so that the city has no need for the sun or the moon. It says, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. That God is bringing light to the nations in the city. There's no need for the sun. And, and, and what's amazing is you look in verse 24, it says, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That the glory of God is, is present there, that the nations that are the people of God are brought into it, bringing in their glory into the city. And, and I, I just love that vision of God as the light. No need for any other light as God's presence there, right? And it goes on. The gates are open. The, the, the lag, there's no night. So if you look at most cities, the, one time, the time they close their gates most of the time is at night to protect. And he says there's no need for that because the presence of evil is no longer around and there's no darkness. It's the light of God and the gates will never be open or never be closed as they're wide open uh, as the people of God come in. It's amazing. 
You envision a place of complete holiness and safety and blessing and good and the glory, as it says, and the honor of the nations. What, what does that mean? When it says in the text, and at his gates will never be shut by day in verse 25, and there will be no night there, and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. What, is, what does it mean that God is going to bring in the glory and the honor of the nations into the city of God? Well, well Many believe that this is him saying, it seems as though John is saying that every good and beautiful thing that the old creation had will be now uh, even better in the new creation. But here now, the city of God will not look like this service experience. I'll just tell you that. That the glory of the nations will be brought into the city. And, and I think what he's getting at here is that there will be diversity and inclusion of every tribe, language, people, and nation represented in the city of God, that it's not, not going to be profoundly just people that look like us and worship like us. And man, like, so I, I like contemporary music and I hope contemporaries in, in heaven. Well, I like hymns and I can't wait because I know in heaven they're only going to sing hymns. Well, I like gospel music and I know heaven only has gospel. Man, I'll just tell you, this is one of the reasons why I love to propel people to go on world missions trips. Man, when you go to Africa, I'll never forget I was in Uganda and we're, we're in the church service and we're worshiping. At one point I look around and everyone picks up their chair and they're just kind of walking, some running around the room. And they were singing a song about men going and entering into the promised land. And there was real visualization in the room. And what they do is just pick up their chair like they are the people of God, walking through the desert, going to the promised land. And so I picked up my chair and I started going with them to the promised land. And it was unbelievable. But some in this room might be a little uncomfortable with that. And I'm just saying, what, what he's representing is that, man, it's not just going to be the way we sing. It's not just going to be the way we look, the way we experience culture. Man, God's heart is for the nations. That's why Woodside loves to share the gospel with the nations. That's why we're doing a campaign right now to fill little boxes. And 500 kids in, in this place raised $4,500 to change people's lives around the globe. It's because God is not just about Lake Orion or Auburn Hills or Metro Detroit for that matter, or America. His heart is for all people of every tribe, tongue, nation, language, everywhere. I mean, one day, it's going to be an unbelievable view as the people of God from all time in every place are gathered together in the city of God as the gates are open and the glory of God is revealed and the glory of the nations is brought in to experience and worship God as heaven will be a brilliant, multi-colored mosaic of all peoples. It's going to be pretty pretty amazing, as evil is absent, and there's nothing they can do to remove the peace and the security and the goodness of what is to come. You think about it, he explains the situation, there's no temple, no sun or moon, the glory of God and his presence are there, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and no evil what, what an unbelievable view of what will be there that's less about there's going to be rubies and streets of gold. It's a representation of the people of God with God himself. 
for all of time. And in verse 27, it stands as an exhortation to us, all of us in this room, right? As it says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I'll just be honest with you, I'm, I'm a broken person. I'm unclean. I, I do things every day that are um, detestable to God, whether it's just lying. So, so what, what, what counts for me? How, how do I, how, do I, how am I there? Well, it begs us to ask the question of whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We talked a little bit about this last week. When you look throughout Scripture, it's always found in Christ. That those whose names are written in the book of uh, the Lamb's Book of Life are those who have repented of their sins and confessed their sins and turned in faith to Jesus and trusted in Him as their Lord and Savior and believed that, man, somehow, God, what you did for me on the cross counts for me. I don't even fully understand it. I don't know if I'm known to understand it, but I fully believe in you, Jesus, and what you've done on the cross for me. And I push all in with you, and I don't even know what that means look like right now, but I'm going to continue walking in that journey of obedience. Man, it, it, it's fascinating. You, you know what you don't read in Scripture? You don't read in all of the New Testament? It's like, man, <sighs> Jim, I'm so glad you did every effort to eradicate homelessness. Come on in. Thank you. Jim, man, I'm just so proud of you. Thank you so much for coming to church twice a month. That's awesome. You know what? You did a couple years stretch where you're there every Sunday. Come on in. Well done, good and faithful servant. Man, Jim, thank you for funding world missions. And that's profound, unbelievable. Man, just thank you for doing that. You get to come in. All of these things are actually really good things. But they're not the things that, 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 that get our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Right? There's nowhere in the scripture to say, man, do these things and God will love you and you'll have a relationship with God and you'll be in God's presence for all of time. No, it's rather the opposite. It's like, man, place your faith and trust in him, respond to the gospel and what he's done on the cross and now do all of those things. We should be doing our best to eradicate homelessness because every person on the street is made in the image and likeness of God. We should be doing all we can to fund world missions. We should be doing everything we can to be present every Sunday with the people of God, to sing of his praises and hear his word preach. All these things are good, but we're not doing them to gain the love of God. We are already loved by God, and therefore out of that, we respond in obedience and walk in faith, right? This is what he does, but you know what? So, so how is it that me, Jim, a poor, broken sinner, gets to enter into the city and, and be in the presence of God for all of time? Why? Because I am detestable. There's only one answer. The blood of Jesus covering me. That's it. That's it. When I placed my faith and trust in Jesus, when I was 16 years old, I firmly believe on that day, my name was written, not because of being a pastor, not because of doing anything. Now, man, I've done a poor job for many years. Some years I've done well, but just trying to do what God calls me to because because I'm no longer considered detestable, because my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And now I look forward to, at the end of it all, seeing God and him saying, 
Man, well done, good and faithful service. You see what it says in John 10 and verse 27. It says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is significant. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know, did you, do you hear that? It says that, man, as a, as a follower of Jesus, I know the voice of God. And it says, God knows me. And it says, I follow God. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, because you prayed a prayer when you were five years old, your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That, that's not a bad thing. That might be the way in which you responded to God and placed your faith and trust in him, confessed your sins and repented and cried out to God. That's amazing. I'm just saying, the scriptures say that, man, those who know him and follow him and he knows them and he walks with them, he has a relationship like we talked about last week. I mean, wouldn't it be odd for people to enter into heaven never having a relationship with God and being with God for all of eternity and never actually having a relationship with him. No, the greatest thing about going to heaven is not pearly gates and, 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 and gold streets that we get to skip on or whatever else. The greatest thing about heaven is the greatest person we've loved more in our entire lives and we owe more to in our entire lives and we've tried our best to know him and love him and long for him for our whole lives. We get to be with him for all eternity. His presence is there. And we get to experience it. Like we talked about last week, it's not escaping somewhere to get somewhere else. It's a person. The greatest thing about heaven is not pearly gates. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And so, man, today, maybe your only response today would just be like, man, I don't, I don't know. I'm not I want anybody to doubt themselves. I'm just saying maybe you don't know you've never actually done that to place your faith and trust in Jesus. Today's that day. Go over to the prayer room afterward. Have a conversation with someone. Just have a conversation because, man, my greatest longing is that every person in this room would be, no, man, my name is written there, and I long for the day when I hear, well done, good and faithful service, enter into the joy of your master. Well, I, one last thing. What makes a city glorious is the life of the city. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And maybe the greatest phrase in all of these chapters is they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. You see, the life of the city is quite vibrant. So the angel takes him to a unique place in the city, and it's very reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter 47. It's in view here, also Genesis chapter 2. If, if you look at it, as the river flows or draws its source right from the throne of God, and the lamb, while the river in Genesis chapter 2, if you remember in, in the garden, it, it, 
and the river of Ezekiel flowed out of the temple. So now this river flows from the throne of God, and the source of the river is actually God himself and the life-giving waters. What's amazing, the life-giving waters from the river nourish the vegetation all around the city and bring flourishing to the tree of life that is the fruit, that has fruit and it's abundant. The tree of life, what's amazing is you have at the beginning of Scripture in Genesis, in this Eden state of perfection that God created without sin, and then Adam and Eve sinned, there was the tree of life there and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tree of knowledge of good and evil is no longer here. The tree of life is here, and you get this real picture. Since the beginning of Genesis, God, since since man fell, God has been on a war path uh, through Christ, bringing all things back into a perfect Eden state. And now we see it here in the end of Revelation. So the beginning of Genesis, you have the tree of life and a, a almost temple garden then, and now it concludes with a temple garden that has become actually a vibrant city here at the end. And the tree of life is here in the middle of it, just as it was in the garden. And now in the new heavens, a new Jerusalem, life abounds. And did you catch the phrase there? says that, that there is not just the tree of life there, but it says in verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. What happened after the sin that entered the world? Things were cursed. There's this reversal. Remember we call the whole series All Things New, that what we're going to experience and eternity is the reverse and making of all things new, all things made right, all things beautiful and holy and good, good again. And it concludes with this relational life that will abound in the city. It says, God will be with his people, and he will be seen by his people, and we will be identified as his people. Man, it says that his name will be on our forehead. Those of you who don't have a tattoo, this might be your first one right there. <laughs> I think, honestly, it's a representation of us radiating the image of God, radiating the glory of God. As, man, if you read through all the scriptures that Moses even longing, saying, man, can I just see you? Can I see your face? And God's like, you couldn't, there's no way you could do that. You would die okay, well, I'll just, you hide there and I'll go by. You can just maybe just get a glimpse of my glory. And so now, man, unhindered, the presence of God, get to see the, the face of God. And it says that we will rule and reign with him. Unbelievable. I said I was down in Detroit a few nights ago and um, I was down there for a concert, and it's pretty profound how crazy people are. I mean, just people everywhere, and it's amazing to me. I was just thinking about the message I was there, how one person can draw so many people, right? Just one person, like people, and they, they go nuts. They're all drawn because of this one person into the stadium. And, you know, if you've ever been to a concert, these things happen. It's like, you know, the first act comes out, and people are just kind of busy, and they're like, eh, you know. And the second comes out, a little bit more people come in, and you feel bad for the first guy. You're like, no one's listening to this person. 
And then like the third person right before the main uh, act comes out and there's more people and they're anticipating waiting for the person or the band or whatever that they came to see. And then when that person comes out, people go absolutely bonkers, right? Maybe you, there's a few Swifties in the room and you were down there a couple weeks before. And it's just like, you see the person like, ah, people like crying, like, I just saw them with my own eyes. I can't believe it. It's unbelievable. Like, I'm like, what in the world? Like, right? No offense. If that's you, it's totally fine. Right? And I was just thinking about that because, man, what's well, a poor illustration because nothing will really measure up. It's like, the thing that's drawing all the people to the city of God is people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And what an amazing thing it's going to be when we get to see we get to see God face to face. I'll just, I don't, I said this last week, I don't care if there's a field that I can go ride a four-wheeler through in heaven or a lake that we talk about going fishing on or whatever else. The thing I'm looking forward to most is seeing the face of God and being in his presence. man, city of God full of life because God is there and we will actually see him. Man, everything perfect and wonderful. Man, we may see our deceased friends there in perfect bliss. That's funny how he focuses on more that we will see God face to face. One commentator wrote this. I just want to read it while I close. It says this, the coming new world transcends our understanding and experience. John tries to describe the indescribable. The most important feature of the new world is not what we will do, but whom we will see. The greatest joy in the new creation will be fellowship with God and the Lamb. John does not concentrate on our seeing and enjoying one another, though doubtless that will happen. He fixes our attention on the beauty of the city, and the city is lovely because the Lord is there. If our hearts do not thrill at the prospect of seeing God and the Lamb, we need to know God better, follow Him more nearly, and love Him more dearly. I'll say amen to that. Man, I hope that you are motivated to live for the kingdom of God here and now because of what is to come. Scripture says we see now in part, and we get to experience a beautiful, profound, deep relationship with God now in part, and one day fully, right? Are we taking advantage of our experience now being with the Lord, spending time with the Lord, and walking with the Lord, and walking in obedience with the Lord, because what is to come, man, that I get to be with him, and see him, and be with the nations that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, should be a motivating factor to give me hope every single day, to take the gospel to my friends, my neighborhood, my workplace, the coffee shop I hang out in, and the, the people that God has surrounded me in life, and it, it, should, it should compel me and motivate me to spend time with the Lord, because man, it is no small act that I get to be in relationship with the God of the universe, and one day I'll get to see him face to face, and that should be my ultimate longing. So, man, may we leave this place today 
encouraged for what is to come and motivated to live for the kingdom of God knowing that, man, one day when I leave this earth, I will be in the presence of God for all of time in all of his glory. And there is nothing else, nothing that could ever compare to that. There's nothing that could ever fill your soul more than that, than what is to come. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for just a few moments of opening your word and the beauty of revelation. Thank you, God, for giving us just time together over the last number of weeks just to dive in and be encouraged by what is to come, by what we will experience for all of time. But I'm really challenged, God, by, um, and I hope people in this room are as well, just challenged by the fact of we already get to see, we already get to see you and experience you and walk with you and experience your glory in, in maybe veiled or smaller ways than one day we will in full. But are we walking in that? Are we taking advantage of that? Are we walking with you? Not one day looking to walk with you, but walking with you right now. Living with you, experiencing you here and now. And all that comes in the coming days, God, no matter what it is, may our ultimate hope be what it is coming from you and with you. And no matter what we look at the world around us and it seems like it's going one direction or another direction, may our hope and longing be not that this place will become heaven, but God, we are going to experience heaven with you for all of time. God, hear our worship as we even sing about the reality of what we just heard. And may it be worship to you. May it be a sweet song to your ears today. In Jesus' name, amen.